It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this recording of the news meeting that we're holding here at Kite, our Music and Ideas Festival in the sweltering English countryside. Welcome Jeevan, welcome Basha, welcome Alexi. Hi. Um, it's going to be warm work. I, I don't know about you, i tell you what's been really weird about this weekend, is you know we've talked about knocking around a different kind of show, a here's everything we don't know now. That's what I feel about 24 hours into all of the conversations about ideas and politics and news. I've now got this long list of things we don't know now. The Boris Johnson story, I don't understand how honours lists are really chosen. We just had a conversation with Rachel Reeves. What are they really going to be able to afford? Hashi Mohammed was here, just made this fascinating conversation about how you, how you change the housing market. Here's what we don't know now. I'm not sure we get a huge listenership, but it's an idea. I think it reminds me of when you arrive in a country as a foreign correspondent. And in your first week, you think, I'm going to write a book about this country. And after two years, you think, well, maybe I could write a sentence if I'm lucky. I don't understand anything here. <laughs> but actually, maybe the book after the first couple of weeks would be quite good. You know, the instinctive reaction. All right, well, listen, let's get started. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. A blistering detail account portraying President Trump as personally involved in removing those highly classified documents from the White House and being cavalier about their security. I'm an innocent man. We will prove that again. Seven years of proving it, and here we go again. He's standing down as an MP. He is triggering an immediate by-election. In an extraordinary thousand-word statement, the former Prime Minister accused the Privileges Committee of trying to drive him out of Parliament. Manchester City have won the Champions League to secure the treble. Well, I'm joined for this episode of the news meeting by Jeevan Vasagar, Basha Cummings, Alexi Mostras, all editors at Tortoise. Hello and welcome. Um, let's start. Long story short. Jeevan, you go first in a sentence. Smoke signals. They're getting more and more succinct, these. As soon as they can just be sounds. Basha? Uh, Trump's toilet trouble. <laughs> Alexi? Uh, catching an octopus. 
Ooh, okay, I think I know where we're going to go with that. All right, Stephen, why don't you go for smoke signals? Sure. So um, I'm climate editor at Tortoise, but before I was climate editor, um, I was foreign correspondent for the FT based in Singapore. And every year in Singapore, you got um, the Indonesians would burn their forest, they'd burn their peatland to plant palm oil, and you'd get smoke coming over the city, and the whole city would have to shut down for a week. So the sky would turn orange, you'd get this metallic taste in your mouth, uh, it'd be horrific. No kids were allowed outside. You couldn't go running. None of the normal, none of normal life happened. That happened last week in New York. It's the first time it ever happened in New York. For, for a day, New York's air quality was worse than the air quality in New Delhi. The culprit for this was wildfires in Canada, which have been unusually intense this year. The wildfire season has been bigger. It started earlier. Um, part of that is to do with climate change. Part of that is to do with how the forest is managed. But the reason that I'm interested in this story is two things. Firstly, that I think it's a story from the future. It's a story about how our lives are changing uh, in an altering climate. And secondly, I think it's a story that tells us um, a couple of interesting things about climate change. One is that it might be smoke that matters most. We think about climate, we think about fire, we think about flood, but smoke gets everywhere. Smoke crosses class, class boundaries, it crosses racial boundaries, it affects everyone wherever they live. Um, and the other thing, I think, is that... Um, we, smoke isn't something that you can really defend yourself from. It gets everywhere. So, I mean, and, and this makes it a story about everyone, about, about all people, basically. And, even who's responsible? Um, that's a great question, and it's, it's always a hard question to divine when it comes to climate change. So, um, ultimately, uh, you know, it, it's our fault, as collectively as a society, for not reckoning with this sooner, for not getting our fossil fuels sooner. But there is a kind of there is a kind of micro question about how we manage forests. No, no, I mean specifically, if I was a New Yorker and yeah. and and this had kind of visited me on a weekday afternoon, I'd be like, who are the Canadian farmers? Who do I sue? Foresters? Yeah, who do I go after? So who's <laughs> responsible? Okay, so the people who are directly responsible are the people managing forests in Canada. And the backstory of this is that. Forests, obviously, everywhere in the world are managed for commercial gain. They're managed for logging, they're managed for farming, uh, they're managed for house building, we sort of build into, encroach into forests. Each of those economic activities worsens the risk of forest fires. But, but ultimately, what's making this worse, what's making this start earlier, is, is the altering climate. So that's, that's ultimately the cause of this. Basha, what do you think? Yeah, it's the apocalypse has arrived. And it's important. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Thank you for your insight. But, but what do you think about that, uh, the responsibility question? Because I can't work out exactly how that process works. How, if you're a US citizen, you have agency over a Canadian citizen who themselves may feel they have no agency over the owners and managers of those forests and those public spaces as well. But that's the, isn't that the sort of problem with this whole issue is that it's it's always it always feels unreachable unsolvable it's never quite clear whose whose responsibility it is and so therefore it perpetuates so i don't know you know i don't know what the answer is in the in the canadian example but it just you can see that it just feels intractable that this is just the first time it's gotten this bad there's no sense maybe you know what what the solution is going to be for next year it doesn't at the moment, we're just sort of living in the smog. I don't get the sense that there's going to be a huge shift in policy that's going to deal with this. It's just this is the beginning of a new phase of our lives. Yeah, I don't think this is one of those who's the guilty man stories. No. I think this is one of those crystallizing. When we talk about 1.5 degrees centigrade, it's very abstract, right? But when you say your kids can't go outside because it's not safe, 
that's really tangible and that drives change. But Jeevan, is there any evidence that there is a link between people's lived experience of erratic and extreme weather events and changing not just public attitudes but policy around climate change? That's a great question. There is a link. It, it takes a long time, so it's not a one-off event. So when, I think you remember a few years ago, there were horrific bushfires in Australia. They happened twice, and around the second time they happened, people began to be angry about the government response. People began to say, the current Australian government policy can't continue, we have to engage with climate properly. That did result in electoral change in Australia. So these things do happen, but they have to be a persistent threat that keeps disrupting people's lives over a long period of time. So, Alexia, what do you say to someone who says, yeah, that's very good, but it's a picture story? No, I, I mean, I think it's exactly what Jeevan said. It's a kind of like really kind of visceral manifestation of something serious that's like going wrong. I mean, the, the, a couple of things that interest me about the story were, were um, I, I, I don't think the smoke coming into New York and in other areas kind of affects people necessarily all, all equally. Like the, there, is a, there is a distinction between the people in the, in the high rises, in the office buildings who have kind of filtration systems and as I understand it, like the, the, you know, the, on the other end, the dockyard workers who are being like handed out these like cheap masks and have to kind of continue working uh, within this uh, w within this smog. So like the the relationship between like some some kind of catastrophic event like this and inequality is, I think, like really really important. And then the other thing that kind of slightly kind of weirds me out about this story is is why is it so New York focused? Like it because of the pictures. Surely. Yeah. Right, because of the pictures and because it's so unusual that this sort of big centre of like westernised power is suddenly having like a bad, a bad time, whereas isn't it kind of like more important that, that, that Delhi has like worse air quality for the other 364 days of the, of the year? It reminds me a little bit of the, the, the story about um, ski resorts getting affected by climate change and this, this would finally be the thing that would wake up all the, <laughs> everyone to do something about it. All right, well, listen, we're gonna, let's come back, because I think you can't really kind of judge the story yeah, on a standalone basis. Let's try and look at it in the context of the others. Basha, Trump's toilet problems. Trump's toilet problems, so... Uh, Is it, was it toilet problems or troubles? Of course, you've troubles. Because you've gone to that alliterative effort, and I just got that wrong. Apologies. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. Uh, so this is the story, 37 federal charges against Donald Trump uh, for keeping secret classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. So I think it's just worth going through the numbers and then I'll explain why I think it matters. So in, in the indictment, which I read in haste yesterday evening, 300 classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago among thousands of others that he had. The, there are 37 in, uh, counts to the indictment, over 49 pages, a 15-month investigation, and the charges are against Donald Trump and his aide, Walt Nauter, who is involved in this because he was the person who was sort of trying to conceal the boxes and then lying to the FBI, according to the indictment, lying to the FBI, not complying with the subpoena. Um, and I think the reason why it matters is that, you know, you hear Trump, this, he's already been indicted on state charges for hush money to Stormy Daniels. And I think you, there's... It, it serves him that we have this fatigue, this sort of outrage fatigue, that there's so, something new, something terrible that he's done. Ki you know, it kicks up more dust in the that this is a witch hunt against him. And actually, I think this is something concrete that matters that we, particularly as a slow newsroom, should take notice of. Why did he take those 300 documents? Why those boxes? That is not clear. 
but but as far as motive, it seems to be very much that these were trophies. That this was, I think, the New York Times uh, described it as Mr. Trump treated them like a prize he had won at a carnival. And there are there are transcripts of discussions that he had with people visiting Mar-a-Lago where he was saying, "I shouldn't really be showing you this, right. but it's it's top secret." And that's actually being used now as as examples that he knew what he was doing and that this was part of the sort of prize of being president is that he could keep these. And in the boxes are also newspaper clippings. I mean, it's not just classified documents. But the United States has a colossal classification regime. So it does matter whether or not he was actually showing people things that are material to foreign nations' intelligence or just showing off that he used to be president of the United States. Well, I think the special counsel is saying that is collapsing that distinction. They did investigate whether uh, any of these documents had been used to further Trump's business dealings, and they didn't find any evidence of that. But they are saying that these are th these three hundred documents related to uh, the U.S. nuclear programs, weapons and defense capabilities, military vulnerabilities, and one particular document that he showed was a proposed attack on Iran thought to be Iran, that's what the New York Times are proposing uh, in their coverage. And so whether he was trying to feed this information with, with strategy in mind or whether he was just so careless and so caught up in his own excitement that he didn't care. Or just excited. I met someone once who was being hired, in, in the end didn't take the job, was being hired by Donald Trump and he took him on a tour of the White House. and took him upstairs and said, and here's the Lincoln bedroom, isn't it cool? And, and obviously was just high and a little surprised on the fact that he was president of the United States. Yeah. To an extent, the reason I'm asking you, Basher, is does the story matter that much if what you've got is a narcissist essentially stealing toweling robes and little soaps from the hotel that he stayed in and not well, in the if, case... Well, if the toweling robes, you know, determine possible future safety of you know, servicemen on the ground. And I think that's the thing that it feeds into his narrative, I think, to say that, oh, it's just him being, you know, that's who he is. He's just, he plays loosey-goosey with the rules. And, yeah. you know, I think the fact is, is that he is, it is a sign, given that he's probably going to be the next Republican nominee, he's going to run against Biden. It matters that we now have even more concrete proof that he is fundamentally unfit for office. And this isn't even the worst thing he's done. This is before we get to January 6th. Yeah. So this is just the sort Another. of the, the, the foothills. Uh, uh, and just under, the, just under the so what bracket, he can and presumably will fight for the Republican nomination and potentially for the presidency all the while these cases go on. Yeah. So none of these things are going to derail the politics of it. Well, that's not clear. So already he's trying to play the politics of it. He's trying to fundraise off the back of it, saying that it's a witch hunt against him. Um, I think it it will impact the presidential campaign. We just don't know which way yet. Stephen, what do you think? Um, I, I've got to admit to having Trump fatigue, um, but I do think that a second Trump presidency is going to be enormously consequential for the world, and that's why I'm interested in this story. Um, I think the, the question that I don't really have an answer to is what does it mean politically? Um, could he argue that because I think um, Pence and Biden both took documents home too, um, could he argue that because they did, he's being singled out, as Basha said, for special treatment, for uh, unjust treatment? Could it play politically in his favour? Um, I don't quite know the answer to that. I I'm sort of interested in that. 
but I, I feel ultimately that I, I perhaps that it, it won't be a really significant factor. I just, I just don't know enough. To Alexi? Well, I mean, I, d I don't think you can d dismiss a story about um, a US president facing federal charges for the first time in history. I mean, that's a big, big moment. Uh, and even though we don't know how the politics are going to play out, Trump is, as I understand it, facing four potential cases, and, he, and he's now been indicted on two out of four, and that might get worse. So at some point on this journey, there might be a kind of critical mass where re Republican, the other Republican nominees and the wider Republican Party do turn against him, and this might be quite a significant step in that direction. Mm. Oh, by the way, I must just share with you my favorite piece of entirely idle, speculative, unsourced gossip about US politics that I heard over the weekend, which was the most secure way that Biden defeats whoever the Republican nomination is, is that Kamala Harris comes to the conclusion that she can't run as vice president, steps back, and they put in anyone with the surname Obama as uh, the vice president nomination, which is kind of amazing. Michelle stands, or Barack stands, which he can do under the US Constitution because it bars a president from running again, but not as a vice presidential nominee. There you go. Wow. Well, that would be good. Wow. That's an amazing thing that's not going to happen. OK, so um, your, your call then, Basha, is that actually it's a milestone in American yeah. history in the way in which Alexei talked about but actually, it, it, it likely will drive a different perception of Trump. I think so. And I think there's a kind of personal haunting that I have as part of this, which is that when I was a foreign editor at The Guardian, I was on the desk. We would, I was working on the paper when, just before we sent the thing to print, uh, the news that Hillary Clinton's emails had been leaked. And I looked at the deputy editor, and we were sort of like, does this matter? Does it mean anything? Nah, it's pro it probably won't make a difference. And I think it's, it's, it's because we didn't notice it as a milestone, that we didn't, like, like now, we don't know what the political significance will be. Will be. But the fact is, is that it is a legal milestone. It will, if it goes to trial, it will put American democracy and justice on trial as much as it does Trump. C can I ask you one thing, though, in the coverage of this story that seems really tricky to me? And, and I suppose it's because I'm thinking about... Boris Johnson's resignation in the UK, the way in which he framed that as having been the Very victim of a kangaroo court, exactly. The idea that this was, quote unquote, setting a dangerous and unsettling precedent, mm -hmm. i.e. complaining that all of the institutions of government and justice were prejudiced and uh, prone to making decisions that were divorced of the facts. What do you do if you're a news organization and Trump's response is to tarnish or always to claim that this is quote unquote the Biden administration is quote unquote the most corrupt government in history i.e. you essentially just throw exactly the same paint that's being thrown at you back at the other uh, side what's your responsibility as a news organization to put that on air or not I think that's the question that's faced newsrooms since 2016 and I think there was a I mean, you can see the CNN town hall thing recently. With people are still not quite sure where the where the line is, and and I I would argue are still getting it wrong. I think probably the bar has become higher now that we're used to his playbook. We're used to how he operates. I think there is, you know, you can see the way that the New York Times has covered 
the indictment and his response, he just did in all caps, this is a witch hunt or the greatest witch hunt of all time. You know, I think there's a sort of, in the same way that there's a fatigue in the, um, in the sort of drama around him, I think there's also a fatigue in, in, his, in his response that we can kind of see through it now. It doesn't seem all that outrageous. Anymore. You think the use of all caps is beginning to be a little samey. Um, it doesn't all right, so- quite have the impact anymore that he thinks. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let's come to your story, Alexi, uh, um, and then we'll try and make a judgment on which story should lead the news. Okay, so uh, I want to pitch this story about Chris Minodi, uh, who uh, had a nickname within his uh, fund uh, of the octopus because uh, for a period between 1998 and 2021, he, it seems, pretty consistently sexually harassed or assaulted um, up to 13 women. Uh, This is off the back of a big investigation jointly conducted by the Financial Times and Tortoise's very own Paul Caruana Galizia. Uh, It follows a podcast that we published uh, about uh, this subject. Uh, And it, it, it really does kind of demonstrate how far we have to go and how our institutions have to go in dealing with this sort of uh, behaviour. So the key facts of the story are that um, 13 women have alleged that Odie sexually assaulted them uh, or harassed them. Uh, Eight of those women alleged alleged actual sexual assault. Uh, The incidents, as detailed in in this report, are, are pretty shocking, like forcing his ha- uh, the, the, a woman's hand onto his penis. And, 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 and it, it's one of those stories where there's just such a kind of a, 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 an avalanche of evidence co- coming through that even though we should say that he strenuously denies a lot of the allegations, he says that they haven't been tested in court, and that's, that's correct. Um, the, it's one of those stories that, in spite of that, has already had an impact. So we can see that this weekend... He basically got kicked out, or his, his, the other partners in his, in his fund are trying to kick him out of the firm. Uh, Goldman Sachs and other uh, financial institutions are withdrawing their money. So, so I think we should be fair on people listening, because we've obviously, each in our own way, in the Tortoise newsroom, been engaged in this story for a fair old bit. And so it's worth just, just scrolling back, doing a bit of a behind-the-story job in that. In the autumn of last year, I think Paul Caruana Galizia started reporting, having heard these allegations against Chris Binodi, one of the biggest hedge fund managers, or sorry, fund managers uh, in London, big Conservative Party donor, Brexit donor. And at the time, if I remember correctly, when Paul published that podcast in December, there were five women, or five cases, as you say, of assault, uh, of harassment and assault between them. And at the time, what was interesting was that uh, Chris Binodi denied them. The firm put out a statement, but didn't go further than that statement, uh, essentially suggesting this was a matter for Chris Binodi. 
And at the time, the Financial Conduct Authority, which oversees the uh, conduct of f firms uh, in the financial services industry in London, would not answer the question that Paul put to them repeatedly, which is, are you investigating this? Are you following up? And I think it's interesting, in the work that the FT and Tortoise have done in the last six months, I think we move from an individual case to something that is systemic, because we seem to be looking now at a story in which the partners in the firm, Odi Asset Management, reprimanded him not once but twice over issues of allegations of sexual uh, 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 harassment uh, and, I don't think assault, but certainly harassment. The FCA was given those reprimands, but has not responded publicly, at least until now, to them. And the police were contacted by at least two people we know of who'd made similar allegations. So I just wanted to step back because I think it's not fair on listeners given that we all actually have been engaged in thinking through this story. But once you know all of those things, Basha, where does the Crispin Odie story take you in trying to understand the culture of the workplace and the rights of the person who is making the allegation and the responsibility of those in power? Well, I yesterday interviewed on this sofa Zelda Perkins, who was the uh, one of the first women to come out uh, to speak about her experience of working for Harvey Weinstein, and she broke a non-disclosure agreement to do so, uh, which she believed for 23 years would was a huge threat hanging over her that, that she would have to pay back money or that she could be taken to court. Um, and what she said so powerfully yesterday is that from the moment she went public in 2017, this is, it was not a story for her about Harvey Weinstein, that was for other people. The story for her was the systemic use of NDAs to hide wrongdoing, particularly cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault, but also racism and pregnancy discrimination. And I found it very inspiring to listen to her, and I think Crispin Odie falls into the same category, which is, yes, it's an important story in and of itself about a powerful man who has a, had a big effect on our politics, but I think you have to see it within the broader context, which is that he has used this same tool to try and silence women, and it's only because they are now choosing to speak out in the, in the threat of breaking those NDAs that we know more about it. And so I think if you want to look at the bigger picture, I think it's it, that's the question about you know how we police the workplaces. That Zelda's argument would be you should not be using NDAs for anything other than protecting IP and trade secrets. It should not be you. They should not be used to to disguise wrongdoing. It, it was really interesting that the story that Madison Marriage of the FT and Paul Caruana Galizia of Tortoise published this week, the very first case once again was someone who for years had felt constrained by a non-disclosure agreement mm. and only having come to the conclusion that she was willing to break it and bear the financial penalty came out and spoke. And I've been really struck hearing more from people like Zelda about the way in which these NDAs not only prevent the truth from coming out, it's not just the silencing, it's the silencing within your life, your concern that you can't tell members of your family, your friends, what happened in fear of breaking that, that NDA. And Zelda's point to that would be that, for that reason, they are essentially unenforceable. So, so women, you know, go through these terrible negotiations, they're isolated, they believe, I mean, there's so much shame and sort of, you know stress around the whole thing and then they believe that if they do one thing wrong that they could be that someone's going to come after them and Zelda's point is 
they can't. They're unenforceable. Jeevan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that's just been said. It, it's really, it's not just about the sort of the allegations at the core of this story, as horrifying as they are. It's about kind of the broader questions, the sort of corrosive impact, effect of imposing silence on people. Um, and also the broader questions it raises about the police, about the Financial Conduct Authority, about the legal, legal profession, and everyone who appears to have colluded in, in apparently turning a blind eye to, to something really horrifying. Paul, it seems mad to have you here and not, and not discuss it, but will you wait for a mic? Uh, so, so just give us a sense of where you think it goes next. So the, so the, the partnership is now trying to force him out. It actually removed him as a partner, um, which is quite, quite an amazing thing. The trouble is that he owns so much of the business, and, and so that's going to be harder to manage. Um, so that would be a story. There's also a lot to be said of Chris Binodi's own personal um, interaction with the regulator. He's very aggressive with them, as you'd imagine. Um, and the FCA itself. So and just finally, the police, Paul, because yes. you had a number of people that you spoke to who had themselves spoken to the police. Yes. But, but nothing was progressed. And we, we hear this always, which is, I had a conversation with the police yes. and then on reflection decided that it, it wasn't worth pursuing. What, what's going wrong there? So, the, so in this case, um, at least two women saw the one case that went to court and called up the Met and said, um, I, I had the exact same experience with Chris Benodi and I would really like to support this woman in court by providing a witness statement. Um, the police told both women that you can't, effectively you can't be both witness and victim and you would have to open your own um, case. I, I, I don't think it's true. I think you can make an application to a judge to consider bad character evidence. In fact, I'm sure it's not true. Um, so the police just got that wrong? I think they got it wrong. I think uh, I don't, it doesn't look like they even checked anyway. Um, so the lawyers we spoke to said, no, you can, you can apply to the judge overseeing the trial to provide a, a bad character um, witness statement. Um, and then the, the trouble is, the trouble is not, it's, it's only one woman who felt um, like she could go through the really, really punishing criminal proceedings against Chris Benodi. And, and, you know, she, Odi was acquitted and it was really awful for her. Um, and, and other women saw that. And of course you see that and you're even less motivated to, to open up your own complaint. All right. Um, it's turning into a news meeting. <laughs> uh, trying to work out what we do next, but let's try and r round up the recording of it for this um, episode of the news meeting. Jeevan, you know the rules with this is you're not allowed to choose your own story, so what story would you lead on? For me, it's obviously the OD story. Basha? OD. Alexi? Uh, the Trump story, just about? Just about over smoke? Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, if you've not um, listened to the news meeting before, you'll know that the idea of it is to try and work out the running order, figure out what story leads, what follows, what follows that. And the idea of that really is to try and understand in what ways a story matters, what it really means, where it goes. 
in this particular case, uh, I think I'd probably agree with my colleagues Basha and um, uh, and Jeevan that would go with an Alexi story on Odi. But I just want to run through what that running order means and why. Personally, I would run Trump as the third story. I wouldn't run it above smoke. The reason for that being that whilst this is a historic milestone, it's not a meaningful change in the way in which people will understand Donald Trump. The really extraordinary thing about this story, funnily enough, is the picture story. When you see the pictures of the boxes in the ballroom and in the bathroom, you think to yourself, this is not someone who went out with a um, uh, lever arch file full of papers by mistake. This is a kind of presidential act of kleptomania, and it's significant, but it's nonetheless not a story that I think changes fundamentally the trajectory of US politics in the short term or our understanding of the potential Republican nominee. And the reason, Jeevan, I would run your story second is actually your framing of it, is the, the picture carries you so far, but your explanation of it makes you realize it's much more than a picture. That point that we think a lot about fire and floods, we don't think about smoke, is such a, an arresting idea because anyone who, if you like, is a uh, climate fatalist and started on the path down mitigation has thought, well, you know what we'll do is we'll start thinking about moving cities or we'll think about new uh, uh, dams and flood prevention schemes. I really don't know what you do about smoke. I don't know what you do about air quality at that scale. And it seems to, as you say, trip across borders and boundaries. And I think it politically impacts everyone. So I would run that as the second story. But the reason that actually I would like to run Crispin Odie and... Uh, obviously, you know, we've got Paul Caruana Galizia here and he did the work and so news organisations often have a tendency and rightly to push their own story. But the reason why I think there's a really important argument for pushing this story is it's not just about Crispin Odie. It's centrally about Crispin Odie, but it's actually about a culture in places of power, in this case finance and the city, where there's a nothing to see here culture that is actually entrenched in systems of doing things. And I think part of the job of a good news organization is to puncture the nothing to see here culture. So for that reason, for what it's worth, I would lead Odie, Smoke, Trump. With that, thank you very much to Stephen Vassagar. Thank you, Basha Cummings. Thank you, Alexi Mostras. Thank you, everyone in the tent, for coming to join us here at Kite. And thank you for listening. Join us again on the news meeting. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 